The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. No, that's fine. I haven't had steak tartare in a long time. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2. Sequel Cast 2 is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergy. With me is William Thrasher. Hello, everybody. And this time around, we are kicking off a new series of films. This is a duology. It's one I surprisingly had never seen before because it's, it's up my alley. It's from 1988. We're going to be talking about the first Waxwork movie. Directed by Anthony Hickox and written by him. And you know, we covered a movie by this guy in the show before. Oh, did we? Yeah, um, based on, on this film, uh, which was successful, not as much in theaters, but on home video, he got the job to do Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. <laughs> oh, nice. That would, well, you know, that that's the most Roger Cormany. Of the Hellraiser films, and this this has a very Roger Corman feel to it, so I can I can see that connection now. Yeah, I think before we we get to the plot, I do want to comment that like this is the kind of thing I'm surprised they haven't remade it because like the plot is brilliantly simple. I mean, this could be a TV show, really, um, because the overall basic plot is there's a, a wax museum where if you lean, if you cross the threshold and try to you know get too close to the exhibits you get sucked into these alternate dimensions and each one is an homage to a different film or genre and if you die in the waxwork you become part of it yes and there's bigger stuff about god and the devil and we'll get into that but um, but you're right i mean I, i love how simple this plot is it's not overly complicated and um uh, first and foremost, you know, this. some stats on the movie. It's uh, produced by Stefan Arenberg, written by Anthony Hickox, starring Zach Gilligan, who, uh, you know, I only knew him from Gremlins. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else. Um, His acting work Gremlins. has been kind of sporadic since then. Has it? Okay. But he's, he's, he's been working, though. He's been on TV, been doing some stuff. Um, uh, also note, uh, stars uh, Zach Gilligan, Deborah Foreman, Michelle Johnson, David Warner, Dana Ashbrook. Miles O'Keefe, Patrick McTee, and John Reese davies with music by Roger Bellin, cinematography by Jerry Lively, edited by Christopher, Christopher Sibeli. This was released by Vestron Pictures, which did a lot of these sort of creature features um, in 1988. The version we watched was the theatrical R-rated. Uh, I see there's an unrated version. I'm a bit curious to see what the difference is. It's, it's got to be nudity, because I remember while watching it, I had commented... That, well, yeah, I'd commented, uh, yeah, there's so many opportunities for casual nudity in this movie, and yet it doesn't take any of them. It seemed like such a strange omission. I bet the unrated version is where all the nudity went. 
I think so because the violence is very much you know for like Fangoria fans or something like it's, or Troma. It's like very uh, very squishy. <laughs> it's a spl- it's um, a splattery movie at times. Yeah, uh, absolutely, and I, I enjoy it for that. But um, yeah, off a budget of one point five million uh, in the United States, this made eight hundred and eight thousand dollars according to Box Office Mojo. I in fact pulled up Box Office stats for nineteen eighty eight because I have nothing better to do, and <laughs> this placed one hundred eighty third on domestic grosses for that year. What what was it sandwiched between? Uh, nothing you'd recognize. I mean, uh, below it at 184 is Bulletproof, which seems like a sort of generic action film. And above <laughs> it is a French film, uh, Boyfriends and Girlfriends. Um, but, that I mean, is the to, perfect title for a French film of that era. Isn't it? But, you know, I mean, but the, I heard some of the stuff that's like below it is movies like Maniac Cop. And uh, above it is uh, stuff like Lair of the White Worm. So, Oh, man. Two two personal favorites of mine, and we really do need to cover Maniac Cop at some point. Uh, yeah, there's like five of those. Is that right? Uh, no, it's all, there's only three. I was getting that confused with Scanners. Oh yeah, Scanners, which has a spinoff series, Scanner Cop. Scanner Cop, yeah. Which is I always get that thinking. But um, yeah, when did you first see Waxwork Thrasher? You know. I have clearer memories of seeing Waxwork 2 when I was young than Waxwork 1. So much of this movie looks so familiar to me, though. I had to have seen it at some point. It would have had to have been in the early 90s on USA's Up All Night. Or Up All Night, depending on which uh, night you were watching it on. Yeah, looking at, at some research, I think you're trying to imitate Gilbert Gottfried, is that right? Gilbert, Gilbert Gottfried and Rhonda Shear, yes. Wow. Um, I bet you there's clips of that stuff on YouTube. I'll have to look up some of those segments, because I'm a big fan of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. But no uh, no joke, if there, was, if there was a way I could just watch those bumpers with the movies they surrounded, mm. I would do that. That would be my playlist while I worked at night. Yeah, uh, you know, I think one of the things Gilbert... Godfrey said for Waxwork is like, and now we're coming back to... It sounds like my Shecky Spielberg, but whatever. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? He's an original character that is not either of us. That's right. Uh, and now it's... Uh, we're coming back to Waxwork, and Zach Galligan has eaten 5,000 cheeseburgers. Because <laughs> Zach Galligan has his shirt tucked in for the whole movie, and it's not always the most flattering look, but that was of the time. The preppy well, look was a uh, tucked-in, short-sleeved polo shirt well he has he has kind of a, a of a preppy look but like he's he he seems to go so he and all the characters they all seem to be 30 year old teenagers who seem to go to high school university right um uh, so i guess for me watching this film this is the first time i've seen it i man that, that video box looks really familiar i'm sure my local blockbuster video had a copy of this Oh yeah, this um, had to have been a, per- a perennial in the uh, the horror section back in the day. I, I think so, and um, I was reading they've been trying to do a remake, but haven't got one off the ground. But it, it's just a concept I think that's so ripe to do whatever you want to do, and it, it's a weird mixture of the beginning, especially feels a bit like a John Hughes film, uh, and then it gets into when it finds its footing a bit more, um, it it improves and. Uh, you want to talk well, about Roger Corman's stories? Did you hear about how this was written? No, but like it, it feels it feels <laughs> like 
the way this movie feels like, it feels like, well, we can do a handful of special effects really well. Can we write a movie that uses all those special effects? And that's how we get the whole sort of vignette nature of this movie. So the director, Anthony Hickox, is British. Uh, interestingly enough, his father is, uh, just pulling up the name here, his mother is the editor Ann Coates, who worked on stuff like Lawrence of Arabia. Cool. And his father, Douglas Hickox, directed uh, one of my favorite Vincent Price movies, Theater of Blood. Oh, so, yeah. So he comes from uh, filmmaking stock. And uh, Anthony Hickox was in L.A. Uh, wanting to try and make some deals. He's, he had done some music videos or short films and wanted to, to you know do some feature deals in L.A. for a few months. Um and while he was uh, flew in from London, um, he was driving around L.A. and he, he wrecked and he he bumped into the car in front of him, got a bit of a fender bender. Mm. And the person in the car in front of him, in fact, was a producer looking for movies. And so he pitched him this idea, wrote it over a weekend, and Vestron uh, Pictures uh, picked it up. Nice. So I mean, that's what, I mean, talking about a Roger Corman thing where you write a script over the weekend. I think the guy said, "Like, do you have a script?" And he said, "Give me a, give me, give me the weekend." And he, he pitched something together. Um, but in, if you stay to the very end credits of this, it says like special thanks to thanks to Romero, Wells. Uh, it, you know, it basically lists like all the movies he's ripping off of. Um, yeah, it calls the, out a lot of the horror movie greats. Right. Um, so yeah, with uh, so what do you think about the, this cast? We talked about. Uh, Zach Galligan, he plays the lead, Mark. Um, and he, he's grown up a little bit since the, the first Gremlins movie. He, he looks more like a, a man, less like a, a teenager. And he, I think he's he's pretty good. It, it's somewhat a comedic performance, but I think this is a, a bit of a more serious tone than the second film. Well, everyone everyone is a little bit heightened in this movie. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, absolutely fair. I was It was bugging me for a bit, but I was delighted to um, see that one of the kids is uh, from Twin Peaks. Oh, nice. Dana Ashbrook played Bobby, the one of the motorcycle heartthrobs in uh, season two of Twin Peaks, and he came back for Twin Peaks The Return. So he's the one, he's the one that goes into the werewolf uh, scenario. Nice. But uh, did you recognize any of the other actors? Or so you have like John Reese Davies, right? Yeah, of, co- of course we recognize John Reese Davies. Uh, uh, the, well, the two, strangely enough, the ones that, that jumped out at me the most, uh, David Warner, who like like any British actor in a movie like this, he's giving it all. You might remember him as evil from uh, from Time Bandits, among many many other things. He was in um, Star Trek Five and Six. He was also in uh, in, in different roles, um, and he was also in Twin Peaks, as it turns out, um, <laughs> playing one of the, the villains involved with the uh, hotel. And, of course, there's Miles O'Keefe, who you may remember from many, many references on Mystery Science Theater 3000. How would they reference him? Uh, well, he was he was in like a handful of their early movies, and they just kind of name-dropped him throughout the uh, original Comedy Central run of the series. I see. Um, and like when they do when they do the deli sketch, one of their sandwiches is the Miles O'Beef. Oh God! Uh, 
Also, I mean, Patrick McNee is, is pretty recognizable. Um, Patrick McNee from the Avengers. No, not, not that not Avengers. Marvel Avengers. No, yeah, not that the, Avengers. The, the, yes, the that Avengers. show that got a horrid American theatrical film remake with... Um, <laughs> with Eddie Izzard and Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman and Sean Connery as a villain letting, letting loose like teddy bears or something. Um, well, they yeah. well. He he, yeah that that movie's weird, and maybe we ought to feel it as a one-off because it's like it's four movies worth of weirdness in one movie. But he's he's a villain who's going to use a weather control machine to hold the world hostage. But he also has an army of robot giant robot bees. But also when he has secret meetings with his co-conspirators, they all wear multicolored teddy bear costumes. Yeah, I I think. It's funny, Sean Connery, they must have paid him a lot of money because Sean Connery was the bad guy for that. And later, they were asking Sean Connery if he'd ever do a James Bond film again. This was like in the 90s. And he said, only if they let me, if they let me play the bad guy and they could never pay me enough. <laughs> Which I think is sort of a missed up. Can you imagine, you know, like a Sean Connery playing a James Bond bad guy? That would have been Pierce, amazing. I guess Pierce Brosnan, back when Sean Connery was still doing movies. Um, I think that really could have been something. Yeah, that really would have been worth seeing. But um, so someone else I want to I want to really point out is uh, Mahali uh, Mizaros, who he's the little person who plays the weird kind of creepy butler. Oh, yeah. one of the weird creepy butlers in this. He's one of those little person actors who appears everywhere. Uh, he is uh, he appears in the movie Freaked, the uh, Alex Winters directorial debut. Mm-hmm. Uh, he appears. He's uh, I believe he's also in Somewhere Under the Rainbow. Oh wait, I can just look up his uh, credits right here. Uh, if only we had something where you could pull it up really quickly and see he, what someone maybe it's an internet movie database. He's in. Uh, <laughs> He's in Big Top Pee-wee as one of the circus performers. He's in the war- oh, he's in the Warlock series. Oh, oh, uh, the film series, you mean? Yeah, yeah. He was in. It was he was out. Yeah. Uh, he was in the Alf costume uh, in a couple of episodes of Alf back when they would sometimes insert a costume in there. Ha, okay, so this is crazy. Like I recognize this guy so much, and yet I'm looking at his filmography. It's real short. Is that a pun? No, that was that oh, was unfortunate okay. choice of words. But it's like he's only got he's only got eight acting credits, which is weird. In my memory, he's in mm. so many movies. I wonder if he went uncredited in some things. It it could have been. I I, I had recognized him from something too, and perhaps it was freaked. Um, but he, I I really like the poster for this movie, Waxwork. It features him like dead center, opening a door, and it says "Stop on by and give Afterlife a try" with all these. Um, all these messed up faces. Very, yeah, these like distorted kind of faces you would see from a creep show comic or something. It's it's, it's a very evocative poster, uh, and um, and 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 about the name of this movie, Waxwork. We were talking a bit on on Twitter about this uh, a few weeks ago when I was watching the movie, and I had never heard the term waxwork until I had seen this movie. But that it's set in the United States, I thought, why didn't? They, why don't they call it Wax Museum? I mean, I know the author is British, but... Well, what, I, I think Wax Museum seems like a, a real kind of, like, limp title. Yeah. Um, there's nothing... Cause it, it, it's, there's nothing all that exciting about that. It's like, oh boy, a trip to the museum. Although I do enjoy a trip to the museum every now and then. But, like, waxwork, yes, it is the British term, but it sounds more horror-y. Yeah, that's true. I'll give it that. But it's just very funny. All the all these high school student characters are going, "Oh, let's go to the waxwork." 
And it's like, that's not a term you would use in the United <laughs> States. or I, I don't know. It just struck me as odd. Uh, also on this poster, it mentions in tinier font, more fun than a barrel of mummies. <laughs> well, that's not false advertising because there no. is a, there are a few mummies in this movie, but not a full barrel full. Right. Um, so why don't we, we've talked a bit about some of these a- actors in, in here, and, and uh, you have a group of friends that they see this waxwork museum is in town, and they well, it's decide. not even like like a proper waxwork museum. It's a house. It's that somebody moved into a creepy old house down their block, but they've turned the house into a wax museum. Yeah, and you see the waxwork sign outside of this house. But, I mean, the way the house looks, it, it, it looks like a horror movie house. Like, it, they, they did a good job picking that location. It's, it's a Frankenstein place. Yeah, over at the Frankenstein place, there's a light. Uh, and it you have these friends just going to it. And I just love how, I think I said this before, but how simple this setup is. It's kind of beautiful. Well, yeah, it's like there's a creepy, there's a creepy wax museum. Oh, hey, let's go to the creepy wax museum. And uh, that they use David Warner not that much, I think, is sort of effective because when he shows up initially, you know, he's all polite. But then when they go there, it's kind of a mystery. Like, oh, this British guy isn't there, but there's this uh, short fella um, telling us to go there. And, oh, there's not many people in this museum. And they uh, and but the way this movie opens is um, really quite horrific, I think. Well, the way the way the movie opens is you uh, is we get this out of context scene where this uh, mansion gets robbed, uh, and we see a lot of glass cases break and a lot of things get stole from them. But the guy who presumably owns the mansion gets pushed face first into a fire. Yeah, and then the music that plays following it is like a nineteen fifties or sixties standard, which I don't think quite works. Well, it's a weird, it's it's a weird choice, and it part of me because I mean there was a lot of fifties and sixties nostalgia going on at the time. Part of me, you know, makes it wonder: were they just trying to harken back to their nostalgia? Were they doing it to counterpoint the horror? Or at some point, was this movie going to be set in the fifties or sixties? Which it really could. Like nothing in the script really dates it. You could easily set this in either of those eras. Right, you don't see people using 20-pound cell phones in a car or, um, I mean, and, and over the end credits, it plays It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To, which is, d- it doesn't make entirety. any sense. Yeah, it does not make any sense at all with this movie. Uh, and maybe they were going for counterpoint, maybe the rights for these songs were especially cheap, I don't know. <laughs> but it, it's, it, it starts things off on a weird foot, but then we get to present day. And meet the high school students. And, and the main character, Mark Loftmore, he is uh, comes from a family of wealth. Yes, he's, he's from the, uh, the rich old money family. But he, he likes to have fun uh, with the help. He likes to have fun with the domestic servants who work for his family. He drinks with the butler. He smokes with the maid. Uh, they kind of help each They all help each other out in these little ways out of sight of his mother. So he's a real, despite despite coming from uh, wealth and privilege, he's a real uh, kid of the people. Although I, I I almost want to debate you on this. Do you really think they're high school kids? Because I, I feel like they have to be early college. I think high school because there's a few of those scenes where they're just talking on the bleachers at the football stadium. Now, you could do that at a university, but and, and you don't see, um, I guess, other than one scene that's in a classroom where he pretends like he's sick or something, right? You don't see that much of the school itself. 
But I think he, it's meant. I think it's meant to be high school. Although all these people look like they're in their late twenties, early thirties. It's like nine hundred two and zero kind of casting. Well, yeah, but like, but but whenever we see, whenever we see them taking a class, and there's there's I mean, there's really only two scenes of those. It seems to be a college level course being held in a college lecture hall with a stodgy old professor who That's also good- may or may not be a Nazi. Every he has this thick Austrian accent and every <laughs> time we see a class, he's always talking about different dictators from the nineteen forties. I think that was a nice quirky touch. Um but you're right, the colleges look more like lecture halls and, and- I'm just saying high school because that's what Wikipedia says, but I don't recall in the movie if you get an establishing shot of their school or if, they're, if, they, if they ever have a line of dialogue like, let's go to high school or, you know, something so let in. Um, well, well, it's full I, of con- really... it's full of contrast because, like, when yeah. we see when we see some of the outside of the school, it looks like a college campus. But when we see the halls inside, it's lined with these sort of sweet tart colored lockers that would appear to that like would appear to just like be high school lockers. It's so weird. It it adds to it adds to the dreamlike quality of the film that nothing really indicates whether they're in high school or college. I agree. And at the end of the day I don't think it matters if they're supposed to be in high school or college. It's just that they're friends and I like the relationship between them is like you know like one of them had slept with this guy's girlfriend before and there's some kind of jealousy and you know you have these characters are not very vividly drawn, but it's enough stereotypes where you get the idea of what their character is, or this one's the vamp, or, you know. Um, they do just enough to color the characters. I, I, I don't think it's any worse than some of the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels. Well, it's enough that, that we care when bad stuff starts happening to them. Yeah, yeah, uh, totally. And... Um, the first of the, I guess we'll just walk through the different waxwork segments or talk about the ones we found interesting. <laughs> but the first one is um, Tony, the uh, the guy who, who he has kind of like the greaser look with the hair. Um, He's always smoking. Always smoking, which is exactly what his character did in Twin Peaks. So that kind of throws me off. Uh, Dana Ashbrook, <laughs> the actor. Uh, but he, he goes into this uh, werewolf uh, display. And we have the beloved John Reese davies one of our favorite actors here on Sequel Cast 2, as a man in a cabin in uh, turning into a werewolf. Unfortunately, we don't get much John Reese davies dialogue, but he does a lot of good sweaty screaming as we get, um, for the time, I think pretty decent werewolf effects, although I think the final werewolf looks a bit more like a cat. Uh, well, it looks... The ears. The, the ears are a bit too big and a bit too expressive, so it, it, it gives it kind of a, a weird, cartoonish, almost Pokemon look. But I think the transformation's... Uh, from human to werewolf doesn't look too bad. No, it's it's pretty it's pretty decent. I mean, it's hard when you're com- when you're trying to compare it to uh, like the Howling or an American Werewolf in London, right? Well, well, the nice thing, well, I'm true, but I think one of the nice things they do is that aside from you know John Rice Davies pre werewolf acting, they do build up to the transformation nicely. There's a great scene where John Rice Davies drags his fingertips across the table and digs these deep gouges into it. Um, John Rice Davies, his skin gets like dark and patchy. Throughout the scene, uh, they keep heaping more and more sweat on him as he goes. So, like, you're really anticipating the change by the time it happens. Right. It... Go on. Well, there's two things in, in the werewolf vignette that I really, really like. Um, one, I like that Tony... I like that Tony keeps trying to figure out what's happening to him. 
Like, he doesn't immediately buy into the fact that he's been transported to a cabin in the woods wearing a completely different costume and a horrible wig. Um, so he's constantly trying to figure out, is this a special effect? Oh, this is hypnosis. I've been hypnotized. And is, like, operating off of that logic that he's in some sort of weird, like, stage magic show. <laughs> For quite some time. So I like that the character is trying to figure out the premise of the horror movie that they're in. But the other thing I love, when they do some neat things with lighting, particularly inside the cabin, there are three big windows that light comes, uh, that moonlight comes slanting in through. It's something that I love is that the, the light that comes in through the windows is impossible. Each light has a different light source that allows all of the slanting moonlight to be more or less sort of directed inward to the center of the cabin where John Rice Davies is. But that's kind of nice and painterly too. I mean, I get that it's not realistic, but it, it has it's a, it's used to good effect. Oh yeah, and uh, you know, as the transformation happens, you know, Tony gets attacked and starts transforming. Some angry peasants come in. Oh, we get a nice, uh, bloody uh, gunfight, and also, but when the peasants come in, it's a running theme. Everyone in this, everyone with a gun in this movie has an unloaded gun and has to start loading it the moment trouble happens. Yeah, yeah, you see a lot of repetition with some of these sequences, and uh, I, I like there's something almost Lovecraftian about this opening thing, where it's like if you go in the waxwork and you you believe what's happening, you're you're kind of doomed. Uh, in some cases, literally, check out a Lovecraft's Horror in the Museum. Oh, I haven't read that one, but that sounds very apt to what this uh, this movie is. Only 10% racist, that particular story. Uh, that's more than his gorilla story, yeah. Oh, um, Lord. <laughs> I had a Lovecraft collection, and the gorilla story was the first one in the complete Lovecraft collection. I'm like, oh, yeah, the, the case of Arthur Jerriman's not the place you want to start. No, no, no. Um, anyhow, but that was of its time, for better or for worse. Also, look at the Tarzan novels if you want to oh. read. Um, severely racist colonial literature. Uh, back to waxwork. Um, yeah. Well, so, so, so Tony does die, and then we see we cut back out to the waxwork, and now Tony is part of the display. Tony mid werewolf transformation uh, is now in is now in the display, being shot at by <laughs> by a waxwork peasant. I like how the interior of the house, where all the wax displays are, is so like dimly lit. Like it looks like a real shoddy uh, museum, kind of like you know off the street. And when I was a kid, off the streets of. San Francisco on a vacation we went to this um it was I guess you call it a waxwork really but like everything like was dimly lit so you couldn't see how shitty like all the models were huh and, and I think they reminded me a bit of like in this film how everything I think you have some good makeup work and stuff but that they make the the area with the different wax things look so underlit and it, it just makes it feel that much more authentic it doesn't look like Oh, you have this five million dollar wax display inside this guy's house. Well, it helps with it helps with the atmosphere, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it is it does become it. But if you're paying attention, though, it does become obvious that many of the exhibits are incomplete. Yeah, wh- yep. which of course we, you know we know what that means because we're watching the movie, or at least we learn what that means. But it is it is kind of it, it is kind of interesting. They never they never linger on the fact that it's that the, some of the exhibits are incomplete. No one ever points that out. I like that they trust the audience to notice that. Right, and, um, and then we get a sequence where uh, the the girl China 
uh, one of the girls, China, goes to a Dracula scenario. Oh, yes, and this is the one with, Mile, with Miles O'Keefe. And this one, I was surprised at how much this, this lingers, because it's all mm-hmm. slow-building, rolling-boil sort of tension-building, and then like a solid minute of crazy gore. Um because you know she she's in you know she's in her her ball gown with the heaving bosoms and there's this creepy family uh, all of which all of which are clearly vampires they all have the vampire indicators you know but they're served a meal and it's just like a bowl of meat and blood which they try to pass off as steak tartare which I had even made that joke sarcastically when the food was brought out <laughs> but then that's how they actually cover it up which which just makes me love the movie more. Well, and the way those costumes look and the way it's lit looks very much uh, not like the Universal horror films, but like the Hammer horror films. Oh, it is very much evoking the, the look of the Hammer have like film. the whites and the reds and, you know, in the Victorian clothing and uh, even the style of acting. I think this is one of the more effective segments as far as trying to feel like the movies it's trying to evoke. You know, but China, you know, but after the meal, uh, China goes to bed. One, the, one of the vampire's lackeys comes in and tries to seduce her, starts turning into a vampire. She escapes. Then she finds her her true love in the basement. And this and he, this is just this wonderfully grotesque scene. So the meat that they ate at dinner, that's all meat flinched from his leg. He's tied down to a table <laughs> with his leg just the stripped down to the bone, but with the, still a foot intact. Um, and he really quickly, you know, gives her the rundown on how you kill a vampire. Then she's attacked by vampires and it's just blood everywhere. Yeah. I mean, once the blood starts flowing, it, it really makes the, the slow buildup, um, pay off, I think. And it's worth mentioning that, um, two of the students, Mark and Sarah escape this scenario or no, they escape the museum. Yeah, they get they get weirded out uh, and they and they leave early. And when their friend and when their friends never show up again, they realize something must be up and it must mm. have something to do with the wax museum. So you know they try to go to the they try to go to the authorities, but they also go to their uh, to their very good friend uh, Patrick McNee, <laughs> who uh, turns out turns out that his his character, who's a this kind of a sort of eccentric British collector of curiosities who uses this really nice motorized wheelchair to get around. He was a friend of Zach's uh, grandfather who uh, died a long time ago. And we start to piece together that the guy that we saw pushed face first into the fire in the opening scene, that was that was Mark's uh, grandfather. Yeah, and Patrick McNee, he's, he's wheelchair-bound. There's wings on the back of the wheelchair. Well, that doesn't come till later. Oh, then, right, until the end. But... Um... They mentioned in the backstory about how him and Sir the grand- Wilfred, that's his name. Sir Wilfred, but how they collected um, artifacts. Yeah, Patrick McNee is given all the exposition, but because he's Patrick McNee, it does not hurt the story at all. Just listen to him talk. But yeah, he talks about how um, there is they they t- they talk to him about. Um, David Warner's characters, who's simply credited as the Waxwork Man, uh, how I mean he does he does get a name, uh, but how he they because because Mark found an old newspaper that has a picture of him, but it's like a pa- newspaper from like the 30s or 40s, um, and it turns out that the guy in charge of the Waxwork sold his soul to the devil, and the Waxwork is part of an elaborate ritual to bring some of the most evil people in the world to life. And Patrick McNee talks about a, a balance between good and evil and how this could tip the balance in such a way that it causes the end of the world. 
and that Mark's grandfather collected these relics that were linked to the most evil people in the world, specifically to keep them out of the hands of evil sorcerers who might try to bring them back to life. Uh, yeah, Patrick McNee is just very intense, giving these monologues, and they're done like in super close-ups, and it's he's just very compelling. It's, you know what else I kind of like? I like that they don't have to like waste time getting people to buy into the supernatural. Yeah, like they, I'm they've seen some weird shit, and they just accept it. Yeah, like I, I, I've, I've seeing this movie realizes how much it makes me realize how much I hate the oh come on vampires aren't real scenes that are in so many horror movies. Yeah, especially uh, when it happens after something undeniably supernatural has happened completely in someone's view. You're right. Um, around the same time in the plot, uh, one of the the cops who uh, Mark goes to, uh, goes to investigate the waxwork house and gets sucked into a mummy scene. A cop who looks and acts exactly like Constantine from DC Comics. Does Yeah, that's right. He has the, the blonde spiky hair. He's smoking. He, All the time. He has all the messed the time. up tie, he's, the he's coat. sweaty, has, has the five o'clock shadow. And uh, th- this mummy scene, I think, was less uh, effective. The mummy doesn't look great, although I like the ending where the guy gets thrown in the tomb. Yeah, the the ending where everyone gets buried alive in the sarcophagus is really effective. But I I think I think the problem one it's too it's too well lit. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's probably yeah. the most directly lit of any scene in the movie when it probably should have gone for like a low level torch lit affair. But all the other thing is the mummy effect itself isn't that bad. But I think what hurts it is that they're clearly going for a Raiders of the Lost Ark vibe. Because, you know, with all, like, the slabs coming down and blocking all the exits and things, mm. they're, clear, they're clearly going for that, but the actual traps aren't that inspired because the traps are just a slab drops down in front of the door you want to get away from. <laughs> I, just, I just think the budget was, the limits of the budget really show in, the, in that sequence. Like, they can't quite do everything they clearly wanted to. Um but it, it it works as far as the plot goes because you bump off the cop that's investigating the thing, and um, so Mark and Sarah have to return to the waxwork museum and burn it. And the plan is to to burn it down, but Sarah, uh, Sarah, Sarah Brightman, which is the name of an opera singer slash pop diva, and I wonder if that's the lead in Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, so I wonder mm-hmm. is that was that like a was that intentional? Was that a tribute or is that just a weird coincidence? It had to have been intentional because she she I think was so. pretty famous at the time. I think and I think married to Andrew Lloyd Webber at the time. Uh yeah, at the time and then they got divorced, which is why we never saw a Phantom of the Opera movie in the 80s. Yeah, I I think I think she's most well known to modern audiences as Blind Mag from uh, Repo the Genetic Opera. Oh yeah. And if you um, oh, and if you want to hear the most glorious bit of post Star Wars camp, uh, she did a disco song called "I Lost My Heart to a Starship Trooper," which is just a listing of science fiction references of the time set to a disco beat. I, I've seen that. It's um, it's an okay number. Uh, I mean, it, it's fun, but it's it's like can you can you imagine a time where that could be an engineered pop hit? It's just it's just a song, a disco song that mentions Star Wars and Robert Heinlein over and over again. I wonder how George Lucas uh, thought of it. I bet at the time he was probably delighted. I guess so. I mean, he did also date Linda Rodstadt, but that's a whole separate story. Wow, um, Linda Rodstadt! 
Mm-hmm. Oh, but so so the vignette Sarah gets sucked into. Uh, it's the Marquis de Sade. I gotta say, there's some great pervy tension going yeah, on in yeah. this scene. It, Be- it, you see Marquis de Sade and and his sort of harem of women and. She gets tied up and whipped. And he has, and like, a guest that's, like, some other nobleman that he's, like, mm-hmm. showing yeah. the ropes, hey, hey, nudge, nudge. Yeah, and, and the dialogue is just, I think, really crisp and sadistic. And uh, and the acting from um, uh, Deborah Foreman, who plays Sarah in this film, is just really great in this sequence. Like, she, it's, it's uh, with a lot of close-ups, she has to act like she's being whipped and doesn't enjoy it but kind of enjoys it but it's all sorts of different emotions she has to play there, there's texture no dialogue. in, this, in and the it's, performance it's really well done and it's and, and the, the set looks good it doesn't look cheap like in the mummy sequence um no i i think this might be the most successful um wax <clears throat> sequence in the movie yeah, especially since like you don't exactly know what to ha- what's going to happen because the Mar- the Marquis de Sade like he's not a supernatural monster he's just like history's most legendary pervert so you you keep wondering when is it going to go too far and how is it going to go too far and here you get kind of uh, Mark comes in and he sort of explains you know if you don't believe in him then you can escape and shows you can go back and forth between the different dimension. Um, to return to the museum safely because she's Which kind, it's of kind of sucked in. It's kind of unclear how he arrives at that conclusion, but I like that yeah. it works. And I like to the point where he hands the Marquis de Sade a gun and just says, shoot me. But of course he doesn't believe in the gun or the bullet. So nothing happens, which I, I rather like. It's a good sequence. I, I agree. It's a little convenient that Mark is able to, to get Sarah out so easily. Um, but it's what they need to do to to continue their job of uh, lighting up the whole waxwork to destroy it. How, however, some other uh, some other uh, kids get in, and they do give in to the Marquis de Sade scenario, which is apparently like the last because that is it, I forget they sent like a number to it, but like that was the last human they needed to to be incorporated into the waxwork to bring all of these moth these evil people back to life. And so all the waxworks, including some of the craziest waxworks, start coming to life. And this is the one thing that did seem so strange to me. So they it, Patrick Mini establishes that everyone in these waxworks is a horrible person who once lived and this whole waxwork experiment is there to bring them back to life. Um, so, you know, Marquis de Sade, real person. Uh, Count Dracula. Well, there was a historical Count Dracula, so that that's fine. But then there's some displays that don't make any sense, like a display that I guess is the Invisible Man, because it's a guy in a bathrobe wrapped in bandages, only it's him forcing gasoline down someone's throat, which is not something I believe the Invisible Man did. But then one of the displays is an alleyway with an alien plant monster. Yeah, it looks like uh, the Audrey from Little Shop of Horrors. It, yeah, yeah, in fact, it even says, feed me at one uh-huh. point. Um, um, which, it just it just makes me like, who, so, so are they bringing fictional evil people to life? I mean, I guess they can. It's magic, but I feel like that undercuts things because, like, well, well, what's the relic you need to incorporate in the waxwork to make a fictional evil person come to life? 
Yeah, I don't think they they thought. It, it, I think they just it's sort of like let's. It it almost feels like uh, the writer and director Anthony Hickox is like I don't know if I'll ever get to make a movie again, so let's put everything in this one. You know that's that is totally true. I would buy that. And uh, reading some behind the scenes stuff on this motion picture towards. They saved their big action scene to be filmed at the end of the movie when they were running out of money. And at one point, the financiers came in and said, like, no more. But I still think the ending works. I don't think it's as... Um, the director described it as it looks like they just filmed a big fight scene in a pub. I don't think it looks that bad. Well, there's but... a lot of fog and smoke in these scenes because that's mm-hmm. when the fires are starting. So it's Which not bad. Like... It. But like, certainly, I, if they had more money, you, you could have had a more fantastical kind of you know battle between everything because you, you do get the sense of chaos. Um, yeah, and I and I di- I didn't think that uh, like I didn't think they were running out of money. It doesn't look like they're running out of money. I, I agree, and uh, but I, I love how crazy and chaotic it gets with like everything just showing up, and it, it's a, a weird like monster mash fight. Yeah, it, it is a mash and a bash and a Transylvania twist all rolled into one. And we also but the get, other thing uh, I love yeah. is that at the height of this, the doors burst open and it's Patrick McNee. It is Sir Wilfred with Mark's butler and all these other old grizzled like British veterans yeah, yeah. who ride in to to save the day and kill monsters and they're all coming in loading their old fashioned firearms. Uh, Patrick McNee has this armor plated wheelchair that he starts just ripping around uh, the waxwork in attacking people. It is tremendous fun. And there's a sequence in all of this where they go to a, a black and white zombie thing, right? Well, oh yeah. Well, th- this is that's when Mark discovers that if you don't believe in it, it doesn't work. Because he goes into a zombie display, mm. and it turns into a black and white zombie movie. So again, who are they trying to bring back to life? Um, and there's a really neat effect with a severed hand that keeps getting put on spikes, which I like. But yeah, that's when he realizes that if you don't believe in it, it can't hurt you, and he finds his way out of the wax wor- of that particular display. I think visually, the zombie sequence looks pretty decent. Well, I mean, the black and white helps. The Dutch mm. angles help. I mean, it's directed like nothing else in the movie. That's that's one thing I like. the 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 sort of di- the directorial eye in each scene shifts in different ways. So so that particular segment channels Night of the Living Dead in all the best ways. Yeah, um, and you get a a final kind of uh, in the middle of all this, the Marquis de Sade. Um, decides to dress like a pirate and start sword fighting. Yeah, there's some extended uh, extended sword fighting between the Marquis de Sade and various characters, including Mark. Um, Marquis de Sade also uh, stabs Mark's butler, who unfortunately dies. Yeah, you get some nice dialogue between the butler Jenkins and Mark um, as their or no Jenkins is the other character, um, but whatever. You, you get you know good dialogue between everyone as they're fighting. <laughs> And the actor that plays the butler, it's such a small part, but he does a very good job. Well, he he gives it his, his all. I mean, it really, like, again, the British British actors, they don't phone it in when they do this kind of thing. Right, and it looks like, especially in this end scene where everyone's fighting, it looks like everyone is really having fun, which I think is, help helps sell the thing as well. You get yeah, that I mean, sense you don't, of... You don't get too many horror movies... Uh, e- even even like cheesy horror movies that end with what's kind of essentially a very celebratory, a very celebratory victory over evil. Right. So why don't we talk about that final confrontation then? Yeah. So so as the house is burning down, um, uh, Mark and 
excuse me, Mark and uh, Sarah end up uh, <clears throat> end up in the back room where they make the wax works. So there's this neat, creepy vat of boiling wax. Uh, they get into a fight uh, with David Warner. Uh, the uh, Pat- Patrick McNee, you know, shows up and, and saves them by shooting David Warner, who falls into the vat of wax, and of course, who does jump out as a wax-covered monstrosity to try to grab them. But they they do escape. Uh, Patrick McNee covers their exit, uh, but presumably dies when the roof collapses in on him. Uh, and we get we get. I think this this special effect. It's a bad special effect, but I feel like it has to be intentional because we see them leave the house. And the house is kind of a bad matte painting with fire going on behind it. Like, we see this raging fire in all the windows that every now and then, like, sort of jets out um, with some some sort of compositing effects. It, it reminds me so much of the Vincent Price fall of the House of Usher, the way they render the fall of the House of Usher in that movie. I feel like it has to be intentional. I feel like that has to be an intentional level uh, level of bad special effect. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, Which is a way to say I loved it. I loved the look of that. Yeah, I, I thought that was less... It looked okay, but if if it's a House of Wax thing, you know, I, I believe you. It would make sense, certainly, with this picture. In that you get a, a gag at the end with the, the hand from the zombie display is is wiggling away from the house. So they didn't quite destroy everything, and they, yeah, it's instead that of, pays off in the sequel. Yeah, instead of a hand jumping out of the grave, yeah, we just get... Uh, we get the, hand, the the zombie hand skittering through the grass. In a not too bad special effect. I mean, you can see how they did it. They're just using the low lighting and the fact that the leaves of grass kind of bend over to cover up the the gap in the floor that the puppeteer is is running under. But it looks really good. It's the best version of that effect. And and I like how the ending is like them driving away, and then there's that hand that's following them. Like it, it said they don't have like a, an ending where they say they're gonna get married or hug and kiss or something. They're cheesy. just happy to be alive. They just happen to be alive and it ends immediately. And I think that that's the thing I, one of the many things I admire about this movie is like it's short and to the point and it keeps on moving even if it doesn't make sense. The movie isn't worried about you know its own internal canon or whatever. It, it just, doesn't waste any time. Yeah, that's I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, I give a hearty sequel yes to Waxwork. This movie is I'm, a lot of fun. It, um, I like how it plays with the different genres, and I like that the plot doesn't try to get too complicated because of the kind of story it's trying to tell. I'm going to give it a sequel yes as well. Uh, I, I loved it. Something else I loved. So I, I, the, I love movies that, that use every part of the movie. So when, when we get the opening title, it's this wonderful, like, it's the words waxwork made of wax, which we then see melt in this nice practical effect. Well, we see that again before the closing credits starts, and then we see it again at the end of the credits. Jeez. Yeah. So they got their money's worth out of that title. Mm-hmm. That's where all the budget went. I see. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, this is my kind of movie. I loved it. I have to wonder what it's like for people that were... I'm sure they got a copy of the whole script, but you're involved in these short sequences like John Reese Davies, and then you sit the whole mo- you sit down and watch the whole movie, and it's like, ah, uh, what? What's this movie about? So this- John Reese Davies, he <laughs> strikes me as the kind of performer who doesn't watch a lot of the movies he's in, and you shouldn't have to. <laughs> oh, oh no, 
He, he like, has done hundreds and hundreds of movies and voiceover roles and, and all sorts of things. I just I just feel like after filming, he went home, cashed his check, and enjoyed a brandy and never thought about this movie again. My one unrelated to Waxwork, one thing about John Reese davies I admire is he was on the TV show Sliders in the 90s. Oh, yeah. And when it started to get shitty, he complained about it in the press and then was promptly uh, fired. But he, he said it, he spoke his mind, which is a risky thing to do when you're still employed at a TV show. Well, I mean, he went on to Lord of the Rings afterwards, and I'm sure that was good for him. But yeah, like Not too well, shabby. He, he was great as Professor Autoro, and the show did yeah. lose something when he left. They gave him a they gave him a sort of death scene, and then there's an episode that ends with them just like standing over his grave. <laughs> yeah, um, I. God, especially in that pilot for uh, Sliders, where they end up in an alternate dimension, and uh, the Professor Arturo is just super pissed off at um, Jerry O'Connell, just screaming at him. Like, that's Mr. pretty good, Mallory. Davies. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's just amazing, amazing. He got to do some great shouting in that movie, or in that series. Yep. And um, he, he's really underused here in Waxwork, I thought. Yeah, it would have been nice to have gotten a little bit more of him. Uh, but but even then, I'm still happy for what we had. I mean, really, he could have played the David Warner role. Yes, he could have, but like I, David Warner is so good as just mm-hmm. an evil mastermind. I, I, I would It would break my heart to see him recast. Sure. So, for a pitch of sequel, I have something in mind. Oh, yes? So what we are going to do is um, we, we open the second film with the, the waxwork uh, from the first film on display and, and fire all burning. And um, the main character goes home and he, he visits his uh, niece and it's his niece's birthday. And so he goes in his attic and finds something and gives it to her. And it turns out what he gives her is... Um, is a trinket from his, his grandfather and it's a waxwork in miniature. Hmm. And somehow something happens with his niece where his niece shrinks down and gets sucked into this waxwork. Like her and all her friends. And then she has to be rescued by, um, Mark and Sarah. And because it is a, something from, Oh, let's presume like the late 1800s, it would be a waxwork of, um, based on stories of around that era. I think it might be more like fairy tales or something, maybe more fantasy-based than horror-based. Hmm. And it would be called Mini Waxwork. <laughs> just just Mini Waxwork. Yeah. Well, I think my, I think my pitch is sequel, so I, I'm fascinated with the idea of David Warner dying in that vat of wax. So uh, my pitch of sequel is that... David Warner's wax-covered slash wax-preserved corpse. Uh, and this is the wonderful thing. If we can't get David Warner back, this will conceal the fact that we don't have the same actor. That the, His remains are now a display in this museum of weird crimes. And All right. uh, so like, it's just this goopy wax covered corpse in an imposing pose just set up there. And so this is like, it's like a, this is a museum that has like the, that has, that has, 
evidence and displays about some of America's most notorious serial killers and criminals, like Bonnie and Clyde's car is there, H.H. Uh, Holmes, some of his relics from his death house are there. Um, and the mere presence of David Warner's corpse uh, starts influencing starts influencing things so that the displays start coming to life. And as the displays animate, the displays try to kill people as sacrifices to bring David Warner back to life. Although David, like, they say David Warner is immortal, but they don't say whether it's the kind of immortal where you can't die or if it's the kind of immortal where, well, you won't die so long as nothing kills you. I'm going to say won't die so long as uh, nothing kills you, but he still has enough of a spiritual presence. So... So various mannequins and displays come to life and starts uh, killing guests uh, in the museum. Uh, the thing is, the museum's being cased by a thief who works for crazy rich people who like to collect uh, serial killer memorabilia. So the heist, this crook's heist, is going to be what gets a lot of people in this crime museum for uh, for the final showdown. So we have living criminals versus dead criminals. There's going to be a lot of crazy gore effects. Um, at the climax of things, the the wax, the mummified wax, David Warner. That's going to the wax is going to crack open and melt off, and he's going to come back as this uh, as this demon style thing. But what ends up uh, but what ends up doing it? It what ends up doing him in though is that. For him to be brought back to life, all of the uh, all of the simulacrums of criminals they have to kill innocent people. Uh, if you kill someone who's been convicted of a crime, then that's not a proper sacrifice. So what fucks him up is that one of the one of the uh, one of the crooks doing the heist, the surviving ones, uh, who has a huge rap sheet. Uh, he sacrifices himself to redeem himself to become a quote-unquote guilty sacrifice that foils the whole ritual bringing David Warner back to life. So in the end, this pit opens and David Warner gets dragged into hell along with the uh, the soul of that particular uh, soul of that particular criminal. So David Warner does face a kind of cosmic justice at the end, and I'm going to call this uh, I'm going to call it uh, Waxwork Two, Crime of the Century. There any what would it say on the poster? Hmm. Mess with the wax, you get the axe. Very good. Lizzie Borden's axe will be there too. Yeah, of course. That's yeah. how we'll tie it in. Um, She'll be on the poster. Played by Christina Ricci, like in that recent Lifetime movie. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. Um. So uh, we're gonna move on to. What you're watching? Well, what are Joe you Thrasher. watching? Oh, oh you want me to okay. go first? Uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'll go. That's fine. Um, <laughs> okay. I have been watching a ah um, uh, yeah, I've been watching a YouTube series lately that's been interesting. Where um, called the. Uh, Gaming historian, where um, oh cool, I don't I can't remember the guy's real name. I interviewed him once when I did the video game music show for KBU FM in Portland, Oregon. But um, yeah, Nate Caruso, I think, is his name, and and he studied. Uh, he has a bachelor's in history, so he knows how to research. And about once a month or so, he'll pop out a video that's really well researched, and he finds a lot of like primary documents and has reenactments. And it feels like you're watching something that would be on I don't know. It, 
kind of like Annie biography, but about different sort of video game topics. And I really liked, uh, he did one recently on the Sega 32X, which was a very bizarre system that Sega came out with um, after Sega CD, but before Sega Saturn. Yet another thing you could plop on top of your Sega Genesis to play a small library of exclusive games. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd like to give him uh, a shout-out. I think his, his videos are are pretty good, and he's a nice guy. And um, I saw him at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, uh, I think it was like two years ago. And uh, one thing that made me sad, but it, it shows you how, the, how people treat people at conventions, is people would... I was just sitting sort of a, a people watching, which is fun to do at a convention, right? Um, in oh, the yeah. dealer's room. And well, you were at a convention recently. Uh, yeah, we can talk about that too. But, um, yep. Um, and we, uh, I was just people watching. And then people would just walk up to the gaming historian's uh, booth and say, like, you don't have very many fans, do you? And then walk off. What? Yeah, it was really rude, and he 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 responded like as nice as you could. Like that's not nice, <laughs> because he was selling merch, and but he wasn't like a he has a following, but he wasn't like oh I don't know angry video game nerd or some of these people that are uh, have shows on Amazon Prime or whatever. But it, it was just sad to see that happen to a, a nice guy like him. So yeah, long story short, yeah, check out Gaming Historian. He has good stuff, and uh, yeah, I'll mention really quick. I was. Yesterday, and as of this recording, in fact, at the uh, Wizard World Comic Con Portland, and uh, I did a live Sequel Cats Two panel that we'll be releasing as a show, um, on uh, with my friends out here on ranking the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and uh, it, it you know I've been this is maybe the fifth time I've done this. Each time we have more people. This time we had about fifty something people in the audience. It's really cool. Uh, I, I think so. Yeah, it was cool, and the audience liked to talk a lot, especially this one teenage boy who wanted to talk after each movie we mentioned. And but we got through all twenty <laughs> movies in forty-five minutes, but it was pretty difficult. Like we had to kind of speed through the last seven, unfortunately. Um, but it was a uh, a lot of fun. Um, have you ever been to a Wizard World convention? They kind of do a lot of the bigger ones across the country. Uh, I've been. I've been to one. It was about uh, four years ago. Yeah, what did you think of it? It was. I mean, it was. It was fun. I I, I got to meet a lot of Star Trek people. <laughs> Although strangely enough, my highlight was a really uh, a really good friend of mine who's a uh, Doctor Who cosplayer. Out of nowhere, I just bumped into them in a while they were wearing a, a trying out a Green Arrow cosplay. That it was just such a it was just such a pleasant surprise that became my highlight of the show. Well, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, um, this one I, I think w- was good, but I somehow think when they when they do something in Portland, they they put less of a a job into it. I don't know. Like something seemed a bit off and it might be because two thirds of the convention center was under construction. Um, so stuff had to be sort of reconfigured. The big thing we had as far as like celebrities there is um, Jason Momoa. Yes. Aquaman himself was there for the, the photos cool. and the lines for that were obscene. I uh, bet. As you might imagine, because that movie is made, if not a billion dollars close to it, it, <laughs> Made more money than I think anything else in the DCU except for Wonder Woman at this point. It it may have outgrossed Wonder Woman by but, now. But I'm, by I'm not sure. Reporting, you, you could very well be correct. And that um, in DC's upcoming slate of films, uh, they're doing Shazam, uh, 
this year and then they're not doing anything else for two years and then it'll be wonder woman 1980 and i think um the harley quinn movie and maybe the batman movie oh yeah the harley quinn movie that is also a birds of prey movie yes and then uh, batman where ben affleck has as long rumored has stepped down from the role of batman so someone else will be batman which was a shame. I rather liked him in that role. I, I wish I wish he had had a better movie to play that character in. I like that he brought anger to the character. I think that was something different. Um, oh, but on, on the subject of panels, some, something I've learned that really helps panels run smoothly uh, is just is that when when you get to the questions part, to just to just flat out state if what you have is less of a question and more of a comment, sit the fuck down. I think with this, you know, we were kind of, instead of saving questions for the end, we were kind of people, we were kind of letting them bump in and say things. Um, but I think one thing worked well with this one that I'll do for future panels is I brought my laptop and a video cable with me, and I just had pictures of the different movies we were talking about, of the posters. And cool. that visual element um, helps. Uh, however, what I did not do, which was foolish, is I should have had intervening pictures that just said the number as we're counting down the top 20 because I would lose track of what number I was talking about, (laughs) Um, which I didn't really care about, but the audience apparently did, which makes sense as the whole point of the panel. Uh, (laughs) So um, uh, anyhow, I went on for way too long. So Thrasher, what have you been watching? So I, I, uh, been trying to get back into uh, documentaries, so I started watching uh, the BBC's Blue Planet 2, uh, narrated by David Attenborough. It's, a, a, of course, the follow-up to Blue Planet, which is, I think, which is from over, gosh, might be almost 20 years ago now that the original Blue Planet came out. Um, but it's just, it's just a, a documentary about Earth's oceans. But, damn, they find, they find some amazing stuff to film at the bottom of the sea. That original, if it's not Blue Planet, it's something like it. Uh, was Planet one of the, Earth? Or, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to confuse with Planet Earth. It was when the high-definition TVs were taking off. That was one of the big, like, must-have uh, discs to have in your collection. Yeah, that was often left playing. If you were at a shop that sold mm-hmm. TVs, you would see that playing on all the screens. That and Serenity. Yep, uh, but I bet, you know, with this... Um, you know, with modern-day high-definition video quality and stuff, seeing all the ocean stuff, there must have been a lot of really neat... Uh, do they do a lot of, like, the deep-sea photography or fishes oh, yes, or they, coral reefs, or what do they focus on? I mean, they, they focus on just, like, different as, different aspects of the ocean, different parts of the world. Um, the, I, I really loved... Because they did one that where they start talking about the deep Arctic Ocean, but then kind of from there just transition to just just the absolute bottom of the ocean, the lowest points on the planet. Uh, and it's just – they just find like fascinating stuff. The thing that, that like amazed me, there's this section of the ocean where the bottom of the ocean is just this thick, muddy layer of silt, which is just made up of – just it's just all decomposing organic matter from from centuries of dead fish and cetaceans, but that it generates these like methane gas pockets. So every now and then, there's just bloop, just these jets of methane gas come flying out of uh, the ocean floor. But it doesn't just release methane gas; it releases this brine, which is denser than salt water, uh, and that at the bottom of the ocean, in different places there are quite literally pools of this brine sitting at the bottom of the ocean. 
and it's so crazy. It looks like you're looking at a puddle of water, but it's it, it's underwater. Hmm. And it's like ridiculously salty, uh, and like they they're these like eels. But apparently there's, like, something that lives in there because there are these eels that will dive into it and will, like, come out, like, making, like, a swallowing motion. Um, so something is living in that brine, although they didn't show whatever that whatever the heck that was. But what's so crazy is it's so briny that even though eels eat things that are in there, they can't swim in it for very long without going into shock. Huh. And so they have to, like, get above, they have a very limited time to get above the surface of the brine, or else the eels just start having seizures and might sink into it and die. Whatever's in there has to be really tasty or hallucinogenic or both. Yeah, but it's it's just, it's just gorgeous photography, gorgeous narration. I mean, David Attenborough, it's like him and Leonard Nimoy, I could just, if they could just narrate everything, the, the world would be perfect. Yeah, if you want some good Leonard Nimoy audio, uh, uh, oh gee, I think it's for Civilization Four, maybe or three. Ooh. One of those. There's an encyclopedia that has sort of you know capsule um, histories of, of rulers throughout time and and um, countries and cities and things, wonders of the earth. And Leonard Nimoy did all those audio for all those uh, encyclopedia entries in the game. And someone uploaded it all to YouTube as one big video. So there's something very calming about listening to Leonard Nimoy, uh, especially now that he's dead, um, hearing him talk about just do reams and reams of narration. Yeah, in search of is another thing worth checking out. But I, I've I've really I, I I love Blue Planet. I really am, am enjoying Blue Planet too. I. I I, I'm fascinated by the oceans, and I love that there's just this sort of artful way to uh, to get information about them. Very good. Uh, all right, so next week on the show, we'll be talking about Waxwork 2, Lost in Time. Is that what it's called? I think that's it. <laughs> that's I, a great title. It, I, I'm right, it is. Yeah, Waxwork 2, Lost in Time, um, which came out in 92, so a few years after, uh, four years after this one. And it also stars Zach Galligan, so that'll be fun to talk about that. And then after that, we'll be talking about, for the next several weeks, the five Terminator films. Oh, that's going to be really interesting to get into, especially since I've only seen the first two. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I'm yeah. going uh-huh. <laughs> to be seeing a lot of these for the first time. Well, and what's really curious is Terminator 3, 4, and 5, each one was meant to kick off a trilogy that never quite worked out. <laughs> oh so, wow yeah um yeah and and we're in fact we're getting a terminator 6 coming out this november uh tentatively called terminator dark fate uh well awful title it's an okay title i don't know um and james that cameron can be the title of anything i know james cameron is a executive producing it which he hasn't done for any of these terminator sequels except for you know the ones he directed one and two um and uh, how can we forget T two three D, the ride at Universal Studios or whatever. Um, but yeah, no, all that will be fun to talk about in the weeks to come. Oh, you know uh, what? I take that back. I've seen whichever one has Matt Smith in it. Is that Genesis? Oh, that is Genesis. <laughs> okay, so I've seen yeah. I have seen three of the of the five movies, but I haven't seen the middle ones. <laughs> Terminator 5 is the Back to the Future 2 of the series. 
<laughs> no, Back to the Future 2 is fun. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. Um, so, yeah, um, I stopped being cheap. I coughed up the cash. You can now go to SequelCast2.com to visit our website. Nice. We have a domain name. Hurrah. Um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Follow the show on Twitter at SequelCast2. And on Facebook, follow... Uh, like our Facebook page, uh, just search SequelCast2. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Internet Mayor. Do you have anything to plug, Thrasher? Uh, nothing nothing new. I've completed a bunch of work recently, but it's still under NDA. Um, oh, but, oh, actually, you know what? Uh, if I'm not sure when this is coming out, but uh, I am going to be at the Louisville Arcade Expo. So if, anyone, if any of our listeners want to say hi... Uh, come check me out there. Also, I do plan to make an appearance at Conglomeration, which is a, another convention uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. So if uh, you want to say hi to me at either of those shows, uh, show up. I'll have uh, my name on a nice big badge, so I shouldn't be too hard to find. Uh, the one, the first one you mentioned, you said arcade. Was that a video game related one or is it arcade yeah. in the older sense of the word? Uh, no, it, it is it is video game uh, related. Mm. It's it's one of those conventions where they set up a big room full of pinball machines and oh, yeah, classic yeah, yeah. arcade yeah. machines that are all free to play. Right. So you pay it your admission, and you can you can just spend the whole time playing games. But there's also going to be a lot of cool a lot of cool vendors, fan fan artists, and things there as well. Which yeah. actually, it, uh, speaking of vendors, you will be if I'm not playing pinball, you will most likely find me at the booth for a punch in the art. Can you explain what that is? Oh, uh, well, it's, uh, it's actually, it's, it's my wife's business. She makes crochet uh, art, and she's going to be making, she's going to have a lot of classic uh, video game-inspired crochet, but I'm going to be backing her up at the booth. So I'll be watching it when she's not there. Uh, I'll be dispensing back rubs uh, for, her, for her exclusive use only. Uh, but, you know, I'm just, you know, they're, they're doing my support work. Very good. Um, yep. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I have any conventions coming up that I know of, but when I will, I'll let you know. Uh, so yeah, um, next week we'll be talking about Waxwork 2, Lost in Time, for Sequel Cast 2. This is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Sane. We've got oh. a sequel scene to do. God damn it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> hold on, I'm pulling up the uh, thing. Oh yes, this is right. David Warner's character is named Mr. Lincoln. Uh, not the one from the Mr. Lincoln thing at Disney World. Different Mr. Lincoln. No relation. It reminds me of a cheesy joke when Seth MacFarlane hosted the Oscars, and it was the year Lincoln got nominated for all those awards. And the joke was, the only actor to get inside Lincoln's head was John Wilkes Booth. Oh, wow. (laughs) Which... um, it's one of those you might have to think about for a second, but it's a. I, I found it funny, but I just had to say that because you said Lincoln. So here we go. What character do you want to play? I, I would love to do Mr. Lincoln, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so we will start out uh, in the scene is they are talking to you. They're having sort of a confrontation uh, near the end of the film. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think this is might be when they're they're facing off in the room with the wax cauldron. That, that sounds right. Okay, so and I'm doing the part of the hero, Mark. Um, one last thing before you kill us, Lincoln. You know my name. I should. You murdered my grandfather. You're a Loftmore, old horror lord's grandchild. Well, well, well. What a coincidence! It's such a small world. Well, then why do you want to end it? Somebody has to. 
I don't know why I pronounced <laughs> grandfather like grandfather. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes you just put you put the emphasis somewhere weird. I think so. And with um, your uh, David Warner was good, but sounded also a little bit like Richard O'Brien's Riff Raff. Yeah, and also there's a tinge of, of uh, Rickman in there as well. <laughs> well, 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 what a coincidence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll get you, Harry Potter. Yeah, the, the, nasal, the nasal quality, certainly. Um, all right, so for a sequel cast, too, this is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrasher. Saying, I will break you. What's this? It looks like we're in some kind of a waxwork. <laughs> This movie has so many titular lines. It's my part.